The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In part one of this episode, we began to make a discerned study of what God's Word, the Bible, has to say in context about the creation, ordinance, and institution of marriage. As before, our goal is by God's grace to come away with the necessary information revealed by God to understand, initiate, maintain, grow, and fully appreciate the beauty and sanctity of the marriage relationship as designed and intended by God. It is also our goal to answer and debunk many of the myths, aberrational beliefs, and misunderstandings which all too often accompany those who are skeptical, critical, or even hostile to God's Word. In episode one, we broke ground on the fact that as opposed to the idea that marriage is some simplistic arrangement defined according to the dictates of constant influx humanistic variables based upon nothing more than convenience and self-gratification, marriage is 
In reality, a creation ordinance designed, instituted, maintained, and blessed by God as a type pointing towards its intended substance. The substance, as was discussed, was and is the relationship between Christ, who is the substance of Adam, and his bride, Eve, the church, who are a special creation like Eve, born from the sacrifice and death of Jesus. In the second episode, we began to examine further evidence and insight regarding biblical types and their substance. We looked at the account of the meeting and marriage of Isaac and Rebekah, as well as the ancient Jewish wedding as classical examples of the type of marriage. The substance, as was discussed, was and is the relationship between Christ, who is the substance of Adam and his bride Eve, the church, who are a special creation like Eve, born from the sacrifice and death of Jesus. In the second episode, we began to examine further evidence and insight regarding biblical types and their substance. We looked at the account of the meeting and marriage of Isaac and Rebekah, as well as the ancient Jewish wedding, as classical examples of the type of marriage. We also looked at Adam and Eve's respective roles in the fall beginning in Genesis chapter 3. In part 3, we began our goal diligently searching out Scripture in an effort to better understand the biblical meaning and understanding of marriage, as well as to answer and debunk many of the myths, aberrational beliefs, and misunderstandings which man, sin, separation, and the world have over time incorrectly attributed and or attached to marriage, God, or His Word. As we concluded episode 3, we had just examined several scripture references in Matthew and Mark made by Jesus regarding marriage and divorce. In parts 4 through 6, we turned our attention to the New Testament epistles and letters. In this episode, we continue where we left off with Paul's letter to the Ephesians. For context, we were studying and discussing the issue of submission found in chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. Quote, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Unquote. As we look at this subject, frankly, the challenge is to reconcile what God is revealing to Paul as a goal for believers versus a fleshly, worldly, sinful attitude. The problem is that we read, quote, wives submit to your husbands, unquote, and make numerous incorrect assumptions which are often unfortunately ratified by what fallen worldly believers think. Essentially, Satan would not only have us rebel against God and his authority, but Satan would also seek to compromise the unity of man and wife, which God created and ordained. Even the most ungodly wife is able to look at her husband and see imperfection. The husband may even be, by all discerning standards, a very godly man, but he is not Christ. He is not perfect. A truly godly woman wants to follow Christ as she should, 
a godly woman who is married now has a potential conflict because her primary purpose is to love, serve, and follow Christ. Yet, a wife wants to maintain peace and harmony in the home, in her life, and with her husband. How are the two reconciled? Look at the latter part of the quotation which says, quote, Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything, unquote. Let's recall that the quote-unquote church is the substance of the type which is Adam's bride, his wife. At the same time, the church is comprised of both men and women, married and unmarried, who are believers and followers of Christ. In this context, Paul admonishes wives to be subject in everything to their husbands in the same way as the church, I, both men and women, are subject to Christ. Notice the example here is Christ. In order to understand the type of submission in question, we need to meditate upon Christ's relationship to his bride. We, the church, individual believers, do not submit to or love Christ because Christ is using the power of force, coercion, muscle, etc. In fact, we are incapable of truly loving or submitting to God on our own. None of us are able to meet God and impress him with our worthiness as a potential bride. Instead, we, one and all, are profoundly unworthy of being Christ's bride. The miracle is that despite all of our inability and unworthiness, God offers by His grace, His free gift of imputed righteousness through His Son, Jesus Christ. By His love and sacrifice, God makes the unholy holy. He makes the unworthy worthy. He sees the bride as a chaste virgin dressed in the white of Christ's righteousness. For those to whom God is pleased to call to a relationship to himself, we cannot help but respond with a profound sense of thanks, worship, praise, love, submission, and obedience. We follow worship, love, submit, and obey Christ because every thought of Christ, his entire will and perfect pleasure is for the welfare of his bride, the church. In such a light, the church... The bride of Christ should have absolutely no reservation in yielding, submitting, following, obeying, and loving Christ. In the same way, if a husband is fully submitting to Christ, the wife should likewise have no problem submitting to the husband. Why? Well, because if in fact the husband is submitting to Christ, then the wife is by extension submitting to Christ along with her husband. The two are united in their primary purpose and goal as designed by God. When the Bible talks about the issue of authority, frankly, we tend to interpret such passages through the prism post-Genesis 3 forward. Both men and women tend to inject our philosophies and ideas of humanistic issues regarding social inequality, fairness, gender bias, etc., We project what we as humans expect God to be in order for us to approve of him. 
Consequently, as we read the Bible, we tend to emphasize passages and assume that God, heaven, and eternity all comport themselves to what we each are looking for as the definition of God, heaven, and eternity. But the truth is that God is sovereign, and whatever he chooses to do in his infinite wisdom and declare his reality is always good because God is the ultimate authority for truth, meaning, morals, significance, beauty, and reality. As a result, many times, women and men begin assigning and interpreting God's word in ways which either give unwarranted preeminence to one gender over the other, or they try to so equal the playing field on every level, both here and in eternity, that there is never any claim for anyone's authority. Our notions of social justice require that in heaven and eternity that everyone is exactly 100% equal in every way. In the end, we convince ourselves that heaven and eternity is a place and or a condition where egalitarianism, that is the doctrine that all people are equal, that we deserve and achieve complete equal standing, is our destiny. Because of the social gospel, or because we are told to pray that God's, quote, kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, unquote, some come to the incorrect conclusion that God intends that man can or will facilitate transforming this earth into heaven by man's efforts. Hence, because some imagine that heaven is a place where God, angels, and the redeemed of mankind are all completely equal, then we are looking for a complementarian society where everyone and everything are completely equal as well. But as we look at the reality of God's revelation of himself, heaven, and mankind, we quickly see, if honest, that neither heaven nor earth are equal. For example, we see that God was and always will be sovereign over earth and heaven. In heaven, we are told in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, that the four beasts, quote, rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come, unquote. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, the 24 elders, quote, fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Unquote. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 11, we read, quote, All the angels stood around about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell down before the throne on their faces and worshiped God. Unquote. In fact, from the beginning, while Adam and Eve, I mankind et al., were created in God's image, we were always inferior to God in that we were not omniscient, omnipowerful, or immutable. 
Neither then nor ever are we becoming God. God alone is God, the one and only deity. Angels, demons, and man are created entities who are finite, while God alone is infinite. These are all realities which remain true in heaven and on earth. God is a God of order. While examining God's revelation of heaven and eternity, mankind as well as the universe we live in, we constantly see signs of order, hierarchy, and rank. It is only when we look at the state of mankind from a humanistic standpoint that some would see unfairness and inequity on the part of God to suggest that there is order, hierarchy, and rank. But the truth is that God is in control. God can and does create mankind with certain characteristics which are equal, and in other respects, God creates mankind with characteristics which demonstrate order, hierarchy, and rank. Whatever God does, and however he chooses to do it, we may not like it or agree with it, but it is good according to God. Thus, in terms of being and nature, in rebellion and redemption, damnation and salvation, men and women, husband and wife are equal. In terms of function and role, in order to demonstrate the substance which is the mystery of the church, God in general has created and ordained certain differences between men and women. Each has a function and role in God's creation. Neither is isolated or elevated to the exclusion of the other. One of the greatest problems is that many read, quote, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything." Unquote. In reading this, we are prone to walk away thinking that the husband, or men in general, have been given a license to be a dictator over their wife, or women in general, while women are relegated to being a slave. Reading and interpreting this verse in isolation and out of context then drives a wedge between men and women and pours fuel on the fire of the gender war created by sin. But Paul doesn't stop here. Paul goes on in verse 25 and follows, quote, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, unquote. Here, Paul contrasts the duty of a believing wife to submit to the authority of her husband to the duty of a believing husband to love his wife to the same extent as Christ, who so loved his church that he was willing to be crucified and die for it. So here, if we want to be blunt, we can be upset that it sounds unfair or sexist that a woman, a wife, is supposed to submit to her husband. But, if so, we can use the same worldly lens and ask which is harder, which is more unfair, submission or death? There is no question that submission is hard, 
Submission is arguably unfair, particularly since husbands, men, are never perfect. On the other hand, compared to crucifixion and death, submission is generally much easier. So as we look at the model of godly marriage, we see that the wife is called to submission, to Christ first, and to submission of God's design for order in the marriage. To the extent that the husband demonstrates attributes, characteristics, behaviors, attitudes, fruits which are in character with Christ, the godly wife can and should submit to her husband because in doing so, they are now united in submitting to Christ, which is the goal. At the same time, the godly husband is not looking to lord over his wife. He is not seeking to make her inferior or a slave. Instead, the husband is prepared, as was Christ, to die for his wife even though his wife, like the church, is not perfect or sinless. The husband is willing to forego his own needs and desires for the spiritual and fleshly needs of his wife. The husband and wife are each putting the other's welfare first. In verse 26 and 27, Paul digresses to talk about the nature of what Christ's love of his bride, the church, was and is. Quote, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish, unquote. We should not imagine that any man or woman has the intrinsic ability to sanctify any person, male or female. We cannot even hope to sanctify ourselves. Sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit dwelling in each believer as a result of the abiding relationship with Christ by faith through grace. Both men and women Husbands and wives can, with the power of Christ, hope to play a part in being instruments to inspire, convict, admonish, guide, and motivate others closer to Christ, who in turn provides sanctification. Verses 28 through 31, quote, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and the two shall be one flesh." Unquote. Here, Paul reminds us that because a man and wife are one flesh in a godly marriage, a godly husband is consequently by Christ's power and indwelling spirit going to love his wife as much or more than he loves his own flesh. Because the two are united, loving one's wife as much as one's flesh is going to be axiomatic. Said in the negative, Paul states that no one hates his own flesh or his body. Likewise, because man and wife are united, a man cannot hate his wife any more than he hates himself. 
This is not only the result of godly marriage, it is the design, purpose, and intention of godly marriage. Verse 32, quote, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church, unquote. Here, once again, Paul reminds us of the revelation that God's creation ordinance of marriage is a meaningful blueprint type of the substance, which is Christ and his bride, the church. Next, we move forward to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-9. through 9. Quote, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of the plating of the hair and of the wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the old holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto a, the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, but contrawise, blessing, knowing that ye all thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing, unquote. So beginning in chapter 2, Peter begins to encourage and challenge believers in Christ to remember that we are a royal priesthood. We are peculiar or special, being chosen by God. We are new creations in Christ, and the old nature is put under subjection. As such, Paul reminds us that our conduct with each other, and particularly with the unredeemed world, should be one of honesty and sobriety, showing reverence and awe of God. All of our behavior and attitudes are to be designed to be a witness to a world locked in rebellion and wickedness. As Peter discusses the various relationships in question, it turns his attention to that of marriage. In verse 1, Peter returns to the subject of subjection. Here, Peter simply continues the discussion begun in chapter 2, where he is talking about the Christian's duty to respect and honor the various authorities, rank, and order of man and God. This is simply in contrast to the fact that the world of the unredeemed tend to exhibit an attitude of rebellion towards all authority, beginning with God. In comparison, because God is a God of order and authority, if a person is redeemed by God, then that person will recognize the sovereign will and authority of God first. 
Likewise, that person will also respect those authorities which God has established as a logical extension of God's authority. Again, with the exception of God, those who are in authority are not necessarily being respected because they are greater in nature, being, character, or quality. They are simply generally greater in role, order, or authority. So here, while both the husband and wife are both vessels in the potter's hand to establish order in the home and to avoid confusion, Peter reminds wives to respect the leadership role of the husband given by God. In fact, as we continue reading, we learn that Peter encourages wives to demonstrate this attitude of submission irrespective of whether the husband deserves it or not. The reason given is that the wife's attitude of godly submission is an example, a witness to her husband, which by God's grace can be the instrument by which her husband may be brought to repentance. This being the case, if we remove the status of the husband from the requirement of submission, then the submission of the wife is really submission as unto God. This brings us right back to the theme of chapter 2 and 3 of Peter. Submission to authority by godly men or women, deserved or not, always has as its goal to win people to Christ by example. If this fails, then despite losing the believer's attitude of submission and respect as unto the Lord, stands as a witness against those who remain in rebellion. But regardless of winning or losing, deserved or undeserved, Christians are called to submission and respect where the cause of Christ may be served. Next, we have the reference to the wife as the, quote, weaker vessel, unquote. It should be understood that the use of this phrase is not meant to imply that women or wives are inferior to men. Instead, what is being recognized here is that in general, women are more fragile than men. Obviously, this is not a rule, nor is it meant to be an insult. It is simply a very general observation of nature. Clearly, there are many women who are far and above stronger in many ways than many men. But again, in general, in comparison, women are generally more fragile. The response of the husband and men in general, then, is to give honor to the women. This is not a ha-ha, nanny-nanny-nanny, I'm stronger than you, I win, you lose position for the man or for the husband. Instead, it is a clarion reminder of the duty and responsibility of the husband and men in general to honor, protect, cherish, and be prepared to sacrifice themselves for their wives, even as Christ was willing to sacrifice himself for his church. The goal in mind for both is to be constantly mindful, remembering that the reward for the believer is eternal life. Both men and women, husbands and wives, are joint heirs with equal standing insofar as the chosen of God are concerned. 
Not only so, but as believers, we have the promise and reality of joy, peace, grace, and blessing to the degree that we each submit ourselves to the sovereign will and purpose of God for our lives day to day, moment to moment. This concludes this episode. Please join me again for part eight. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust in